0: Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Gautam Akunda. Did I say it right? You did. Welcome. And uh, I've I've been looking forward to this. We have um, we met both on a panel and we both talked about past podcast guest Everett Spain and talked about these stories with him. And uh, then since then, we've both run into him separately. Uh, I think you're closer to him than me. And but you let's see. I think of you primarily as you teach leadership at Harvard and you both teach leadership and you work with a lot of leaders because you have your own podcast where you bring great leaders on, including Everett. And I wonder if you could give a bit of your background a bit more than what I just said. And, and then I want to hear about the passion for leadership because it's you exude it. Sure, sure, John. It'll be my pleasure. So uh, yeah, so I'm currently a research fellow
1: at the Harvard Kennedy School where I've been for the last few years. Um, Before that, I was a professor at Harvard Business School. I taught leadership at Schwarzman College uh, at Tsinghua University as part of the Schwarzman Scholars Program. So I was in China for two years doing that. Uh, And before that, I did my PhD at MIT in political science and, you know, work at McKinsey and all those those sorts of things. But the leadership question. So there's two answers to the leadership question. One is intellectually true and one is emotionally true. Um, The intellectually true answer is... Leadership. When I was doing my PhD, was I decided the most important thing about which we knew the least. And so, you know, the traditional path when you you did a PhD, too, Josh, The traditional advice you get from your from your committee is, you know, find a hole in the literature and fill it, right? Like that's what you do with your PhD. Mm-hmm. But I had come from the private sector, and I didn't actually want to be a tenure track academic, so I didn't like feel a need to shape the six years of my life in a PhD program around filling a hole in literature that that just seemed like a waste of a waste of life sort of right so I decided I wanted to take on a really really big problem and see what I could figure out and if it you know if it ended up that I couldn't be an academic that was fine I didn't want to be an academic I just go back to the private sector or something or the government or something like that and so the leadership so if you look at for example I was in political science if you look at the political science on leadership what it mostly says is that leaders don't matter that's just you know that's the basic thrust of most of the literature. Some of the most important books of internet on international relations ever written don't even mention leaders. They're just not part of the topic. It's something that we study, and having come from the private sector, I thought this was crazy, right? Like like you, I have ne- had never, and to this day, have never spoken with a practitioner, a journalist, even a historian, right, and asked them to explain what's going on inside an organization and not almost immediately have that conversation revolve around what's happening inside the head of the person in charge. Mm. And so intellectually, I just thought that this was a huge puzzle and we needed to figure it out. And that what that became was trying to understand the answer to a question that people have talked about since almost as long as people have been having intellectual debates, right? Going all the way back to the ancient Greeks, was trying to answer this question of do individuals matter? Or is history just just all driven about larger social forces, right? So, do we actually care about the people who are the, who, who made the decisions, or are the decisions just a product of circumstances, and anyone else would have made the same decisions at the same time? So that's the intellectual answer, and it's a true answer. But the emotional answer is: when I was in high school, really pretty early in my high school career, I started reading about military history because my high school librarian was one of these sort of almost almost like a you know like like a caricature from a from you know from a from an old English novel librarian who loved to take studious you know students under his wing and introduce them to whole intellectual worlds they'd never underst- known anything about. And he introduced me to military history, which I knew nothing about. And I rapidly became fascinated with it. And in fact a big as you know Josh, a big chunk of my professional life has been involved working with the military. And so there's sort of an outgrowth of that very early interest. Um, but the thing that you get when you read about military history, at least for me, that sprang out over and over again, was that it's not just that leadership is centric central to the stories that you learn, because of course it is, it's that leadership seems to be is that the leadership seems to be almost impossible to understand. Right? How exactly do you get people to, you know, charge the beach at Normandy, climb a cliff at people who are firing machine guns at them? over and over and over again until they win, right? That is a question of leadership that from a civilian's perspective boggles the mind. I mean, if if somebody was shooting a machine gun at me, what I'd be like is I'm not going, right? But somehow they're able to do, not just do it in the sense of like one miraculous leader can get five people to do it under special circumstances. No, they can systematize teaching leadership to such an extent Let's just expect, but no, this is, you know, like, we don't want to put you in this situation, but if you are in this situation, you will do the right thing. We know that, right? So that's a fascinating question. And then at the higher strategic level, right, you can read, say, John Keegan, the great English military historian, writes, uh, he, he writes in the face of, his first book, The Face of Battle, he writes about the Battle of Waterloo. And then in his second book, The Mask of Command, and that, that Waterloo is about the, that tactical level, right? The, the, his, the face of battle. What's it like to be a soldier at Waterloo? That's what he was trying to help you understand. In his second book, The Mask of Command, he writes, one of the chapters is about the Duke of Wellington, the British commander who won the Battle of Waterloo, right? And there you get this sense of what it's like to lead, you know, 100,000 people in unimaginably difficult circumstances and what kind of a person can do that, Right. And in the case of Wellington, not all generals are like this, but Wellington, right, just seems to have been someone who had a computer for a brain and ice water for blood. Right. Like he he wasn't a brilliant innovator like his enemy, Napoleon. He just never, ever made a mistake. Right. He just seems to have been one of those people who who doesn't get excited, doesn't get nervous, doesn't get doesn't rattle. Right. Uh, Keegan writes about one of Wellington's uh, notes to his junior, one to you know, to one of his subordinate commanders, that he's giving the guy orders, and he makes it clear that he's written this out, that he wrote this out while people were shooting at him, right? So it's not so it's, yeah, it's in the middle of a battle. The fate of Europe is being decided. Thousands of people are dying, and he personally is being shot at, right? And he writes this order out, and as Keegan says, it is perfectly clear it is impossible to understand it uses five different tenses right it is cognitively complex it's it essentially involves a set of nested if then statements if the enemy does this do you should do that if they do this you should do that if they do this you should do that right and the ability to do that under those circumstances is to my mind just as hard to understand as the someone as you know as someone who's leading the leading the rangers at normandy and it just became this sort of engaging, fascinating question. What sort of a, you know, how do you, how do you, what's either, what sort of a person does that, or how do you become the sort of person who does that? And what are they like? And I've been lucky enough to get to know, you know, sort of the, um, you know, sort of, the, we were just talking about a few minutes ago, Josh, in my opinion, America's greatest living soldier, Stan Crystal, right, has become a very good friend. And it's fascinating because McChrystal and Wellington have nothing in common in terms of personality, you know, and yet we're able to reach sort of equivalent heights of their of the same career with extraordinary sort of extraordinarily levels of success. And then so now that becomes it turns out there are many different paths to this one to, to this one sort of extraordinary leadership. And that, for me, what I love even more than studying leadership is teaching it, right? Like teaching leadership is just, is just more fun than just about anything else I've ever done. But what you learn from that is you have to help students find their own path. There's no one right answer, right? Every, every leader has to lead their own way. And so when you're a teacher, what that means is you have to get to know every student and you have to understand
0: they, who they are if you're going to help them. And that's great too. Can I go back and get the timeline? When you... The Military Historian Teacher, that was high mm-hmm. school?
1: That was high school, yeah.
0: And the books on Wellington and the one before it, that was – you read in high school? I read in high school, yeah. So that's been uh, – so those books were simmering on, in your mind for a long time. Yes. Then you, you graduate college, you're at McKinsey, you're doing professional stuff, and then you decide to go back to get a PhD. Yes. Why did you go back to get the PhD – because uh, I loved research.
1: Okay. I thought I would like to teach. I like writing, um, and I really valued the sort of being taught to think in the incredibly rigorous fashion that a PhD in social science will do for you. Okay. That so that but there's a second answer. to That uh-huh. um the Iraq War. Um, you know, I was I I I graduated from college in 2001. 9/11 happened right after I left school. We went to the you know the Iraq War, and so some of my close friends and mentors were like big supporters of the Iraq war. And so I thought, well, these are smart people. I should, you know, like they think they think the right thing to do. Then I guess they're right. Um, and then the Iraq war happened and it was a catastrophe, right? Like a catastrophe that of, of world historic, unimaginable proportions. And what I noticed was that like people who were professors of international relations pretty much universally were saying, this is an unbelievably stupid idea. You cannot do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just... Like at a very profound, both intellectual and emotional level, like traumatized by what happened to such an extent that I was like, I can never make a mistake like this ever again. And there was a group of people who got it right, and they got it right for good reasons, mm-hmm. and I should go learn from them.
0: Okay. So, so that's what got you to go there. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't to be a, a, a tenure-track professor. That was, not, that was not an interest. And so when they said, what thesis do you want to do? Okay, this question... In the back of your mind, here's my chance to answer it. The, not question, but this, um, this pursuit, I can, I can follow up on that, that, that's yes. been on my mind since high school. So you like dove into it. You're not like, I want to get a job in this professor place. So you're not constrained by, uh, you're constrained by what's most interesting to you. So you're fascinated by it. And yeah. I guess in the, in the context, I think that there's been, for a long time, there's a great man of history mm-hmm. uh perspective, and it sounds like you it sounds like you were describing like uh, a backlash against that, saying, "No, no, no, it's the opposite. there is no and and you're thinking, maybe there's some uh, synthesis of these things that and you want to and so you're really fascinated by that and lo and behold, it could have been the teaching leadership sucked for you, but it turns out to be something thats fa- that you love. So things are great. <laughs> I mean, do I read that right? Like you're doing what you you love doing?
1: No, you, you read it exactly right. Um, it, you know, like Edward Teller, the you know the physicist, once said that I'm not a i am not I have many monomanias. So my wife always says your problem is you're interested in everything, which is true, right? Like like that's kind of a big chunk of my life. But yeah, no, it, it's it is. I feel uniquely lucky in that I made a set of choices about my PhD, things like that, that were in any rational sense, in terms of like maximizing your career outcomes, bad ones. I mean, you know, you know like I, I would not, if I were a PhD advisor to me, tell me to do what I did, right? Like, and I always tell my students, you know, like like you should not necessarily learn from my example, except possibly as a cautionary tale. Um, But for me, yeah, I, I meant that, yeah, there have been times when it was a very difficult path, right, like, but it meant that I, at least... I won't say I was always doing things that I loved, but I got a chance to do stuff that I loved quite a lot. And when I did, it was just that life was just better in every regard.
0: Would you, you said everyone has a different path to leadership. How about teaching of leadership? I think that teaching leadership, um, maybe you have to do things different, individual for each person, but is your task similar from person to person? So it isn't it is so the similarity
1: is you need to fit is is I need to figure out who you how I can help you become the leader that you were meant to be not the leader that I was meant to be right which I mean so um, so you can see leaders right whose protégés do very well and are leaders whose protégés do very poorly. That's a pretty consistent pattern. You know, like across sports, you'll see coaches whose assistant coaches go off to great success consistently, and you see coaches whose assistant coaches never succeed. Um, and the ones whose assistant coaches never succeed, the problem seems to be that they do not allow their juniors to build their own identity, right? Uh-huh. The people, the, the, their protégés tried to be, all, all they taught them to do was to be them as opposed to be themselves. Mm -hmm. and that so as a as a as a leadership professor right um so i'm an hbs product not in the sense that i have a degree from there but in the sense that i was that i spent seven years in the faculty there, Mm -hmm. which is if anything and even more sort of an all-encompassing experience um and they you know hbs has a way of teaching you to teach and, you know, we, we do the case method, right? So I don't stand up and I, I used to, but now after seven years, years, I don't stand up and lecture anymore. I don't like, be, like, like, I, like, we don't do the, this is the right answer. Mm-hmm. We do is present a case. And then you walk through the case. And, you know, one of the most interesting things about the case method, one of the best things about the case method is you're standing in front of a room of 94, extremely intelligent, highly motivated people. All of them have the exact same facts. Available to them, right? They have all read the same fifteen-page case, and those ninety-four different different people will come up with like thirty different things that you should do. So, like, is, I mean, one is in and of itself. Isn't that just a fascinating fact, right? Like, like, like all of these people, really smart people, like cannot agree, even though they all have the exact same information. Like, that's kind of that's kind of great. But as a leader, then you have to figure out. Okay, so for you. Like, let's help, let's help you realize, right, that for student X, the right thing to do is to, like, stand up and make the charismatic speech at the beginning because that's what works for your personality and your people will respond to it. And for student Y, you've got to figure out that actually that's not something you're ever going to do, right? That's not who you are. That doesn't make you a
0: bad leader or a less effective leader. It just means that you need a different approach. I want to take a step back here for a second. And I got a humble brag a second here. Go for it. Maybe I told you about this. um, Living in New York City, one of the cool things is that if you go online, you can get free tickets to go see uh, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert Mm -hmm. recorded in person. And some people travel, you know, they have to schedule it. But if you're here, every now and then I just go on and- And so uh, you can get it. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the time, no tickets available. Sometimes there's a ticket. So I go a little while ago and I bring my nephew. And there's a comedian who comes on before and he calls people up from the audience. And uh, he picked me. And I I brought my nephew up and it was so much fun. And uh, he says, so what do you do? I say, I I teach at NYU. And he goes, what do you teach? I go, leadership. And he was like, whoa. And the whole audience, you could tell. Like they were like, and I forgot that before business school, I didn't know that there were classes in leadership. And I didn't know you could teach it. I thought, you know, obviously (laughs) Martin Luther King was born with it. I'm not. And therefore, (laughs) end of story. And, I mean, if people who listen to this podcast are going to know. I mean, I teach it, and I, I've, I've, I took the classes and so forth. But how, was was teaching leadership? Did that? Did you learn leadership growing up? Was that a formal? Did you know that this is something you could study, or practice rather?
1: No. In, in fact, I would say, as Josh. Is, it, in my case, it's even funnier than I didn't, you know, until I went to, uh, to, to a business school. I didn't know that teaching leadership was a thing you could do until I actually had to teach leadership. <laughs> um, <laughs> I used to say that my first year at HBS, I was exactly one class ahead of my students. Um, and, so I, uh, and so absolutely, no, I, I did not even, I mean, I had some sense that it could be taught because I was studying, you know, not, not formal, well, formally eventually, but initially just out of interest, you know, militaries and things like that. And it's pretty clear that they had a model that it could be taught because they weren't, you know, they weren't just finding the people that it's not possible for this given the size of these organizations. Um but I didn't understand what, you know, like I assumed that teaching it meant going, you know, meant you you had to learn how to march at West Point, mm-hmm. not that it was something that you could do in a classroom when you were studying a mining company. Um and so that, yeah, that absolutely was was not something I realized would ever be a part of my life up until basically the day Harvard Business School made me an offer to join the faculty.
0: Looking back now, do you also have a feeling of like, how are we robbing students? How are we not teaching this growing up all the time to everyone? So I do. Uh, I
1: absolutely do feel that. And, and partly because I would say that one of the reasons I like to study leadership is because leadership is everything, right? There's, there's essentially nothing I cannot get, I cannot learn about by saying, no, I'm, I'm just studying, you know, how this matters for leaders, right. Or for leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, if I want to study climate change, well, climate change is going to be really important for leaders. So totally makes sense, right? Like, like there's no, there's no reason not to do that. Um, but when I think about it for students is, is, is twofold, right? One is everyone can be a leader, right and and one of i would say if there's one thing that comes out of the literature on leadership in the business schools really really strongly over and over again is that leadership and formal authority are not the same oh, thing
0: oh yeah yeah i mean the american mind tends to not distinguish and not even know that there's a distinction and falls back on using authority when put in a position where leadership is required yeah and oh, and it, yeah
1: and it's sort of ironic for me to say that because my books are about people who have formal authority, right? Like, like you know, like some of them are have le- other leadership traits, but I'm writing about like presidents of the United States and things like that, like people who have the ultimate informal authority. But they're not the same thing. So you can be in an organization and be in an incredibly junior level, and still be a powerful leader to the people around you. And sometimes, you know, if you're lucky and the circumstances are right, the whole organization. There's no doubt about that. But the second thing, the reason I think we kind of I wish we did this more, is we can, you know, go back to the Oracle at Delphi, right? What was carved above the entry to the Oracle at Delphi, know thyself, mm-hmm. right? You cannot be an effective leader for the long term if you don't understand who you are. I'm not sure you can be an effective person for the long term if you don't understand who you are. And I think that Biden, that learning about how to be a leader is one of the most effective ways to learn about your own self and your identity and your values. And by not giving people that pathway to it until you know, graduate school, if they do an MBA or something like that, I think we're really denying them that wonderful chance to become more fully self-actualized people as well.
0: This may sound off topic, but have you read uh, The Dawn of Everything or Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe?, so, uh, Tribe is on my Kindle. I
1: don't. I don't even think I've heard of The Dawn of Everything.
0: Oh, so it's this bit. Yeah, it came out I think last year. I mean, it's like 700 pages, so it's 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 a lot. Yeah. And it woke me up to. I'm going to say this all too quick, but when I grew up, I learned that there were these Stone Age cultures out there that somehow hadn't gotten the picture, uh, gotten with the program, and we had to help them become like us. And 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 they're backward, and we we're forward, and and. And today, a lot of people think, Josh, you want us to return to the Stone Age, but these indigenous cultures are actually from these. These two books for my introduction into it, and I I, I don't want to like overgeneralize, and uh, people are going to misunderstand, and they're going to project onto me saying things that I'm not saying, like noble savages things like that. But that's not what I'm saying. But they're very apparently they're very sophisticated in terms of their social interactions, and a lot of our they don't have formal education like we do, but a lot of our formal education is the very abstract things and it's actually very separate and it's actually um, our schools are one of the most authoritarian like our school system is extraordinarily authoritarian and the grading is full of judgment and things like that whereas they have to um, in immediate return hunter-gatherer societies I said that a little too quick but certain groups if you can just walk away if I try to tell you what to do and you can just walk away you can't lead people by authority because there's no hierarchical structure. So they have to learn how to relate with each other. And if I want you to do something, I have to connect with you. I have to know who you are. And if decisions are all made by groups all the time, everyone, by virtue of just growing up in those cultures, has what we don't have today of this education in learning learning about yourself, learning about the others. And I think it was more automatic and that we've lost a lot of that through these hierarchical structures that replace... The kind of self awareness and the kind of social interaction that was automatic before with hierarchy and authority. So I think it used to be more automatic. And I think we're, we, we've, um, we've inadvertently, when I say used to be, I'm talking about the 300,000 year time scale, not like um, our old educational system. I mean, before we had, for 300,000 years up until, I don't know, 10,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago. So I think it's, it was more, I think ancestrally it was more natural. Maybe even, um, what's the word? Adaptive.
1: So, I mean, it's hard to know. It's, I, I, am thinking that um, I, I, I took an uh, what well, wasn't an anthropology course, but there was a lot of anthropology in it course in, in college. Um, and, and I mean, so like the Yanomano in Brazil, we studied, you know, we studied a fair amount. And there, you know, I mean, like the level of violence, that's just a sort of, Normal part of Yanomana society, which in violence and hierarchy tend to go together hand in hand,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right, is is shocking. Like, you, like, like, you, when you really work through the book and realize just how many of the characters in it die of violence, mm-hmm. it's it's you know it, it's not, it's it's just sort of it, it is genuinely stunning. Um, but the question that you always ask about 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 when you know the problem of anthropology when we do these studies, right, is the the cultures that we are studying have been pushed to the margins by. By, by sort of technologically advanced societies. So if they were living in sort of the fertile, you know, much more hospitable environments that, you know, they would have been living in for most of human history, their culture would probably look very different.
0: Yeah, the, the research on this is yeah. a cutting edge. And that's, so these books are pretty recent. Yeah. And a lot of stuff from... 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, it's like, Oh, that was interesting, but we've learned a lot more since then.
1: Learned a lot more since then. Yeah.
0: So anyway, I don't want to get too off topic, except that we were talking about education and learning these things. And I think we we're starved for these things. I think we love these things. And it's, it was weird to be on stage and have everyone in not everyone, but you know, a, a gasp in the audience of like, or not gasp, but like, what's le- teach leadership? What, what's that? And increasingly, I feel like, yeah, what I'm teaching is not it's not like how to storm Normandy or how to get people to storm Normandy, it, although it is, it's, but it's really how to learn who the other person is, how to learn who I am, how to learn the basic human emotional system, not as some abstract thing, but practically using it. So I think that's
1: right. So I'd say the second thing that we do is I say is I'm teaching. I think I'm teaching leadership, but what I'm really teaching is patterns. So, the way I put it is, we do, you know, when I was at HBS, we would do 27 cases every semester, right? Mm-hmm. And those 27 cases were selected by, you know, much wiser people than I, you know, on the faculty, um, who um, had decided that these were the, of the thousands or tens of thousands of cases we go to talk, these were the 27 most important, right? The 27 that they most needed to see. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is is that because the 27 things that these cases, each of these cases was about, were issues that were either common, so you will certainly encounter this in your career as a leader, mm-hmm. or incredibly important. So you might or might not encounter this, but when you do encounter this, you better get it right. And the virtue of sort of both a case study approach and the way we're doing it is what I could say to you is when you hit this in your real in your life going 10 years from now, it won't have been for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you will, you will learn leadership by being a leader, right? You cannot, you cannot educate away from the need for, for actual hands-on experience when you're trying to become a leader. Like, that, I do not think that's possible. But what I can do is change the slope of your learning curve. So because you're not seeing it for the first time, you will understand what you are seeing faster, and you will learn, from, learn about it faster, and you will get better faster than you ever could have if this was all new to
0: This is a different style of learning than, this is not abstract. This is not teaching no. theory. And yet I would bet that they learn the theory better. That is certainly the school's belief.
1: And it's also mine. And you know, like what, what I, I'd say ideally is every case is an illustration of a theory. Right, and then at the end of the and you know and then at the end of the module, we'll sort of give you, like said, if you want to know what the actual academic literature says, you know, these are the, the these are the papers. You should you, you should go read them. And some of, and some of the students do, but I think that's right. I don't. The number of people in the world who can genuinely learn from abstract data mm-hmm. is pretty tiny, and they're pretty much all professors. As sort of, it would be my guess, right? Most people learn from stories.
0: Yeah, I think they're going to learn stories and experience.
1: Stories and experience. That's right.
0: And. Yeah, to me, leadership is a a performance, it's an active, social, emotional, expressive, performance-based field, just like singing on stage or playing music, and you don't learn to play piano. No, I don't think it would, I don't think if you lecture music theory to someone, they'll they'll learn how to play piano. You got to put your fingers on the keyboard. That said, playing scales is also not playing music. So I think the case study feels to me like playing scales. It's not yet music. You got to go off and actually like once you start performing on stage, that's when the learning really starts kicking in, but you got to get those patterns in it with piano would be like getting the muscle memory of your fingers like hitting the right keys and you know spacing each other and hitting hitting the keys with the right amount of force. And then comes something that comes with mastery and virtuosity of, of At a certain point you switch from like playing notes to playing expressing yourself and you switch from this i'm guessing here because i I haven't learned to play piano but there must be at some stage you switch from like what are the notes to what's the emotion that bach was trying to express here what was going on in his life at that time what has he written before and in leadership it's you start having to learn of of who the people are it's it's you're expressing yourself the more that you get it the more that you're not trying to lead you're doing what feels natural what feels right how does it sound to you you're nodding they they can't hear that
1: (laughs) i know i am nodding yeah so um i think this is exactly right so the the parallel that that springs to mind is so my wife and i went to see uh gil shaham play the brahms violin violin concerto for uh, valentine's day Mm -hmm. right So, so with the philadelphia symphony orchestra and what made it such an extraordinary, you know, almost transcendent musical experience was not his technical virtuosity, which, you know, is incredible. Like, you know, like, like yeah, his technical skills are on, are you know, unimpeachable is not the right word. They're the right word. They're astonishing. They're, they're mind boggling. I, you know, I grew up playing the violin. I'm watching him just going like, I, I don't even understand how this is possible. Mm-hmm. But that was not it. Right. Like what made it so joy, so wonderful was the joy that he radiated. Every moment. So I remember watching and just, you know, you could not help but smile because we we were lucky. We were literally right in the first first row. You could not help but smile. But watching him, because as the orchestra starts playing and he's waiting to begin his part, he starts not just smiling, but actually like nodding his head to the beat of the music, kind of swaying to, you know, like, I mean. The sort of stuff that in the audience you're not supposed to do because it's kind of an etiquette, right? Like he is absolutely just so transported by the music that he cannot stop himself. And for us as members, you know, we're lucky enough to be that close enough to see him do it. And then when he started to play, realized that that, that, that there's no other word for it but joy was just transmitted to us in every note. It was lovely and just marvelous.
0: Did you have a feeling of what your potential was as a teacher? Like if his violin playing is your teaching leadership?
1: Uh, I mean, I I will say I have worked with people who are that good. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, I don't think I am yet. Do do you see, does it help you see your potential? Do do you feel like, oh, I want to, I want to ooze with joy to my students so that they feel the way when I teach, I want them to feel the way I feel watching him play. That's yes. So my, my and, and that is, I mean,
1: so is so I, I remember giving advice to one of my colleagues who was a little struggling a little bit. He said, you know, if, if you like them, the students, they are your biggest ally. And if you don't, you'll never win. you like, like, you know, there are 94 of them. You will never win. You have to like them, right? Like you have to be in, yeah, you, ha- you, they have to feel that you are having fun when you're in the classroom with them, right? That doesn't mean you can't be tough on them. It doesn't mean you can't be hard. It doesn't mean you can't have high standards, but you have to, they have to believe you're having fun. Um, and so the moment I'll, for, I'll never, I will not forget where I was like, oh, okay, this is, is, um. so my, one of the cases I wrote, it's my favorite case. I'm proud to say it's a lot of people's favorite case is about this woman, amazing woman named Cynthia, Car- Cynthia Carroll, who was the CEO of Anglo American Mining, came in and transformed their safety culture. So Cynthia is amazing. She's one of the most remarkable human beings I've ever met. Uh, and the case is, was, you know, was kind of like, like, it was like a year of my life putting this together. And you're not supposed to spend this long writing a single case, but I just fell in love with the story. It was amazing. I went down into a mine to like, you know, work a steam drill to understand what it was like, all that sort of stuff. And so the day I'm t- teaching the case for the very first time, Cynthia is coming. She's going to be in the class, right? The dean has heard about this case. It's so high profile. He's going to be in the class. You know, they're, they're, um, The students have sort of gotten buzzed that this might be something special. So they have invited guests, so many, so we had to set up on the fly an overflow classroom for them, for the guests to watch on video. So I am, you know, I'm a junior faculty. I am petrified, right? Like, like, like this. I, 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 you know, everybody gets a little nervous before a class. But at this point, I've been doing it for a few years. I'm pretty relaxed. I'm good, and I am petrified going into this classroom. And my section president walks up to me. And he's, you know, he looks around, he walks in the room, he sees the room is stuffed, right? There's like, you know, like every chair is full. There are people, you know, the dean's in the back. He's like that. He realizes he's a very smart. Guy. He's very smart, very sensitive. He gets what's going on. He just walks over and he's a little taller than I am. And he leans down, and he whispers into my he puts his arm around my shoulders and he leans into my whispers in my ear. Don't worry, prof. We got your back. This is going <laughs> this is gonna be fun. And I was like, oh my god. <laughs> So yeah, that's it. If you know, if they can tell you're enjoying it, they and they like that you like them. That 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 joy has to come across.
0: Now I'm gonna. You make me think of, of um, you know, the people who reach the pinnacle of of any active social emotional performance based field. You know, I think of Springsteen or Messi or um, Jordan or Federer. It's before you do it. It looks like so much work. I, cause I remember I had to take violin lessons as a kid and I definitely remember times with my mom sitting there at the piano accompanying me, uh, me playing scales or whatever, tears streaming down my face. And, you know, and to this day, music is like, sure, I like listening to songs, but I'm not, there's nothing in me that's like, I must sing or, or play music. And, and if I hear music, I'm like, okay, that's, I like it. But when I was studying physics, man, I would just go to the library and, I just look at the books on the shelf and think like I can't wait till I can get to this stuff and what is this and likewise with playing ultimate like how you know running sprints in the rain and this is nowhere near the level of of other players but when I think of Springsteen playing I mean you know he snaps his fingers and he's going to sell out 10 nights in a row at Giant Stadium and no like no question of course like it's going to happen and and everyone's going to walk away like that was the best show I've ever seen And and many people are going to, will have bought tickets to all 10 shows and we'll see all 10. And he's playing for like someone who hasn't been born yet. You know, some future musician is, he's in part playing for like changing music. And, uh, now I'm going to, I don't know if this is going to sound like too big of a jump, but to me, it's totally natural is that I look at the world and sustainability is like a big issue. It, It is the issue. I mean, people can talk about AI or talk about, um, uh, democracy falling apart, but I think, uh, all right. Maybe I, I this is a big one. And so I'm called. I, I, can, I can see that there are issues that other people don't see. And I can see solutions that other people don't see. And I think we can get there and, and really enjoy it. Part of the step is you can't lead people to live by values that you live the opposite of. I have to practice it. So when I'm going up and down the stairs, bringing the solar panels up to the roof or going for a month without cooked food because it, there hasn't been enough sunshine to, to power the pressure cooker. I know that there's like, I'm playing my scales. And I know that at the other end of it is exuding fun. Because I know that I know what's available. I haven't worked with the military. I feel like the military must have that as well. I mean, the the level of service I think so. I mean, so the, the, you know, the finest
1: officers you meet and the finest enlisted people you meet, right? So, you know, Everett is the quintessential example of that, but Stan is as well. There are plenty of others, right? Like, like, it's not that they don't have a, it's not that the life doesn't impose extraordinary burdens. Um, so, I mean, Stan, I'd I, like, I, I've known him for years and I did not know it'd been this bad. He spent, when he was deployed at one point, he spent five years out of the country, Like he didn't see his family for five years basically, you know, other than maybe like for a day or one or two, a day or two here and there mm-hmm. over that stretch of time. I can't imagine doing that. I mean, I just can't. Right. But for, you know, for him, he was he was serving his country. Right. He was doing what he needed to. He was doing what his you know country needed him to do. And because he's Stan, he's the only person who could do it. Right. So so I, I understand both why that was necessary and, you know, you know, and regret the necessity of it and also just uh, But there's this sense of, I think most of us never get the sense that we are doing something that matters. Or if we do, it's not that common. And maybe the I mean, I'm I'm 100% certain you've read Man's Man's Search for Meaning, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. And like meaning is possibly the most powerful thing that we can have, right? The sense of purpose that we're doing this for a reason. And it does make what seems otherwise unbearable things deeply bearable. And so, um, one of my friends, my best friends in college, was a Goldman, you know, right out of college. And I remember, you know, he was working the hundred-hour week type stuff, and and he hated it, right? And he was miserable, and he, he was about to quit, and he was on the phone with me, and and I was like, well, you know, look, you you know, like, you're better off making it through the two years and then leaving than than leaving in the middle, right? That just, you know, you're almost through, like just make it through, like that. And that, that was my advice to him, which you know, which I guess he took, but. What struck me was, you know, a few years later, he had a different job in which he was working probably harder than he did at Goldman. Mm-hmm. And he loved it mm-hmm. because he had meaning, right? It wasn't the hours. It was the sense that, you know, that, you know, grinding through the mill for an M&A that would make, you know, make a lot of fees but do no good to anyone and probably do a fair amount of harm to, them, to a lot of people was valueless. Whereas this was something that was really transcendently valuable that I can, you can see with – um I think it's actually one of the hardest things for for vets, who especially for in, in elite uh, in elite units, is when they leave, they sort of don't get that anymore, right? There, are not as many places for them to get, that, especially at that level of intensity. Well, it's not handed to them; it's still available. It's available, yeah, but it's not. They have to find um, it or create it. That's right, and it's hard to, and it can be hard to do. So, for for teaching, for example, so I'm uh, just thinking back is the this the, the emotional. If you really love teaching, the emotional valence is so high. So, my example of that is I, you know, during the pandemic, I taught over Zoom. And, you know, the emotional intensity of Zoom is like 1% of doing it in a classroom, right? Yeah. But even despite that, it was so noticeable that our dog absolutely refused to allow me to teach without him in the room. Uh Right. So literally, the one time I tried to teach and he kind of like got caught, you know, in a different room and the door closed, he started barking and complaining so loudly that you could, you could hear him over the zoom. And like, you know, people like what's happened to your dog. I had to go rescue him and bring him into the room. Um, but if he was in the room, he sat at my feet in perfect silence, right? All he wanted is he, you know, he could tell the emotional intensity you know, and the joy of this experience of just how great it is to teach even over zoom. And he wanted to, and he was, it was critically important to him to be a part of it.
0: Crossing the species barrier. Yeah, like this is just such a great learning that like my dog
1: could pick up just how much how, just what an experience it was that he had to be part of it. All
0: right, I'm going to switch over. I've told you about the Spodek method. I'm going to share it with you. And I'm Okay. I'm, sometimes when I do it with people, I I don't tell them I'm doing it. I just do it because you don't have to, but you're um so now when when we do it, you're going to both participate and have this meta level of like what's going on probably. Uh, okay. Uh feel free. So um and then afterward, if you're if you're up for it to talk about it, although sometimes you talk about it the second time. But um all right, is the environment something that matters to you? Is it something that enough that you've done anything active on it?
1: I it matters
0: to it matters to me
1: for sure. Uh it matters to me enough that I've donated, you know, reasonable reasonable amounts of money to it. Um I'll say I'll I'll circle back to your it's the only issue that matters. So to me, the only issue that matters is stabilizing democracy mm-hmm. because nothing else will get fixed if we don't do that, right? So like if, if you care about the environment, I will make this pitch to you. If you care about the environment, the thing you should most care about is making sure that the United States stays a stable democracy because if it doesn't, the envir- anything to do with the environment is hopeless. And so I draw from that is my political involvement is essentially centrally driven by that that simple calculation. Everything Everything I do in
0: politics is about that. So the... So I didn't say it's the only thing that matters. (laughs) But, um, I, that's why I didn't want to say it's like, I don't want to rank of of these top things. Um, when you think about the environment, when you think about nature, what do you think about? And I don't mean what do you, uh, when you're in nature, think of yourself at, at a time, a time of your life when you're surrounded by nature. It's something where you're not doing something that's, uh, like requires pollution or fossil fuels or something like that. It's just you out there. Mm-hmm. Do any particular scenes come to mind? Like, what do you think about what's nature to you?
1: Uh, I mean, the moment is, is so every year we go hiking in Big Sur, mm-hmm. and it's it's hiking through the redwoods more than any of like as soon as you say it, that's the image that comes to my
0: head. Mm-hmm. When did you first go there?
1: Um, so the redwoods, I went. With, I, I saw a couple of times with when I was a child with my parents. So just you know the normal touristy thing. Mm-hmm. But my parents are not hikers. So the real like going out into the country and just wandering down these paths for hours and hours and hours um would have been uh the first time would have been with my wife, uh two, probably two two years ago when we were out in Big Sur for the yeah.
0: So did um did the childhood experience you didn't have the full experience that you do now. Was it did you have an experience there or was it just really like is that what led you to know to go the next time?
1: Uh so so I did have an experience there it's not what led me to know to go. Um, so when you're a kid and you first see you know like a redwood or a sequoia I think I think there is nothing it's it's sort of like the first time you see a whale right your mind just kind of struggles to process that this is possible. Um that's why I you know my, my wife always teases me that I'm completely obsessed with whales which is true like 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 with no shame whatsoever that is absolutely true. Um and um and and so you do have this profound I mean, quasi-religious, I think if you're in the right moment in your life, it can be a quasi-religious experience mm-hmm. because it is so beyond the scope of anything that you have encountered before. Um, I didn't, uh, but that was not the driver because I like, you know, it was so distant in the past. The answer was my, my wife is much more of an outdoorsy person than I was before I met her. Uh, and, you know, she loves, she loves being certain, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of, we had the opportunity to go and now we go every, we may, may make it a point now to go every year. And because the, because of the intensity of that experience,
0: can you take me into one of those moments? What's the sensory like? What are all the, the the sights and the sounds and the smells and the touch? So the first thing is, in general, out there, it's quiet, right? You
1: might hear the occasional bird, or you know, like water babbling, you know, you know, in a creek or something like that. But basically, what you get is quiet, right? For Someone who's a city boy, like in particular that's a, there's an intensity to that mm-hmm. and then so the sound is is the, the there's the the background noise of nature out there for whatever reason is pretty low um and then the second is this sense of elevation right like you, you if you're somewhere in a redwood grove, your eye and I would say your spirit is pulled up. Over and over and over again, as you see these these sort of primeval forest behemoths surrounding you, right? I mean, that's the thing that that doesn't, well, you know, I'm from the East Coast. The thing that doesn't get conveyed to you when you read about the redwoods or see photos, photographs of them is it's not one tree, right? It's not like one or two or three things there. You are in the middle of a grove of hundreds of these things reaching for the stars, and that is a profoundly different feel for it. So you're just—I mean say—is the the greatest danger is you spend you, you, the greatest danger is you're going to trip and fall and like break something because you spend your time staring up at the sky, you know, instead of watching the path, you just keep looking up at the sky as you walk as you walk through. And that um, that sense of uplift can last for—I mean, you know—for hours as you go through. Oh, and, and just see, and, and then, yeah, that's, that's the, the, the valence that hits me when I think back on it now.
0: Between breadwoods and whales, are, is there, is, is it something very similar? Is, is one more or less meaningful to you than the other?
1: No, I don't think one is more or less meaningful. I, it's, it's, I mean, you know, I am as susceptible to charismatic megafauna as the next person, right? So there's like no doubt in my mind that there's something there, and, you know, but like that, that works. But, they both speak to me on a – they both – and this is, you know, as a former or current academic, they both speak to me on a profoundly – but there is there is a visceral, emotional level of being in the presence of giants, right, of majesty, of of things that just your normal everyday life does not prepare you for. But the second one is that there is – and, you know, it is as – almost as or maybe even equally as powerful is an intellectual beauty to it, Right. Of trying to understand how is this possible? So whales, for example, um, there's a, a lovely essay um, that you can find if you Google titled something like "The Mere Existence of Whales." So whales are impossible, and the reason
0: for this is that um, is cancer. So wait, wait before you go, mm-hmm. I don't want to. I, I want to step back from the uh, intellectual part yeah. and go back to the emotions. Can you name some of the emotions? I mean, you said elevate and uplift. I'm not sure if that's if those are exactly emotions, but can you? Those are all
1: right? The first one, the overwhelming one, is awe. Mm-hmm. So the f- I, I the first time I went with my family when I was a teenager, we went on a whale watch in in Alaska, right? So we were just on a boat, mm-hmm. and we were very, very, very lucky, right? I mean, the the guide who did the way, done thousands of these whale watches was like, I've never, you know, this has never happened before type whale watch where. One of these guys, one of these whales, you know, came up to the boat, you know, rubbed up against the side oh. and hung out with us for like 15 minutes. Right. I'll, I'll never forget, you know, getting getting spouted on by a whale, you know, as a teenager, to the extent that you could literally just clean out and you could touch the whale. And, and I did. Like, I mean, there was oh. he didn't bother him. Right. Yeah. Like like he was there for a long time, just decided to to, to investigate the boat before I went back to, to, to eating, I guess. And so you can just imagine, you know, someone, a teenager growing up in the suburbs and things like that, you know, like my contact with nature is basically the rabbits you see once in a while, right? It's pretty peripheral. Mm -hmm. Leaning over and being in physical contact with, you know, with, I think it was like a humpback whale, Mm -hmm. right? Like there is nothing that can prepare you for that
0: you could see the texture of its skin you, can, you could
1: feel the te- I, like i felt the texture of i lit, lit, reached out with my hand and touched the whale
0: um and it stayed and it's like yeah the this is just i mean you i'm taking it in and i'm thinking i haven't had an experience at that of that scale before so i'm trying to imagine it but i can't well Given these emotions that you felt, the awe, the, the elevation, the, I don't know what you, I don't know how to put a word to what you're describing. Uh, I invite you, this is at your option. Yeah. I invite you to think of something you could do day to day. It doesn't have to be the rest of your life. It can be just trying it out in your regular life to manifest some instance of that emotion or something like that could you do something could you think of something or maybe the two of us together think of something to create something like that feeling of awe you know not flying over there to see it but um and if you're up for it and i have to clarify something i did not say that almost everybody hears or projects i'm not saying what can you do to protect them i'm not saying what can you do to help the environment this has nothing to do with fixing the world if that happens great but that's not the point mm-hmm. it's for you to experience some of the best feelings of nature in regular life. And some people choose to do something that they change their lives forever. Some people choose to do something. Oh, I've been meaning to try something out. Maybe this is my chance to try it. Uh, there are three constraints that I find help. One is that not something, something you're not already doing. If it's something you're doing and you want to augment it, that can work. Uh, and then something you do with your own hands. So a lot of people I work with are leaders and they're tempted to say, oh, I'll get my team to do X. We don't learn from other people's experience. So it's, something you do with your own hands and something with some physical component. So it has to be something you actually do that not just watching a documentary, reading a book. Uh, And there has to be some element of you can't leave things worse than you found it. Ideally, after it's done, you have some sense of like, I left it better than I found it. So are you ever trying to think of something you could do and practice that would manifest something like that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it would be wonderful to be,
1: especially to be able to do on a, you know, I mean, you have these, mo- I mean, you have these moments and you remember them for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. right? And certainly, I mean, we go back to Big Sur every year because we we're trying to recapture that and with a fair degree of success. I mean, we've we've been twice, and I'd say it hasn't haven't consistently both times, but to do that more than you know a handful of times a year would be a wonderful, a wonderful thing. Um, and I'm trying to imagine what it would be, you know, like. You know, I, 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 like I live in the center, you know, I, when I say I live in the center of the city and it's not a metaphor, I literally live at the mathematical center of Boston oh. right you No, know, on top of it. Um, and so, you know, how would you, how would you do that? You know, uh, and try to, and try to experience that.
0: That's part of the challenge is like this step yeah. is, is, can you recreate it? I mean, you know, you're not going to plant redwoods and have them grow all around you overnight. No, <laughs> but you might not need that full on thing to get something. Worth having. And here at this stage, so if you're up for it, it, it takes mm-hmm. every now and then someone will say, Oh, you know, I've been meaning to do X for a while and they're, they're like, and it fits. But usually it's a back and forth that takes a few trials, a few explore, explorations. But then, and then it usually clicks and someone's like, Oh, and they come up with something. Does anything come to mind or a particular direction? I mean, the closest I've
1: come is so. I mean, I used to, in the most, in the most narrow sense of this word, I, I used to sail.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And so by that, I mean, like, 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 you know, I took a few lessons out on the Charles river, like sailing, like not, I'm not saying real thing. Uh, my wife was a competitive sailor, right. You know, like, like big boats, but when you talk to, when you talk to sailors, you know, I'm mean, going to think about what you can do in an urban setting, right. Mm-hmm. When you talk to sailors about what it's like to be on the ocean, that's the that sounds to me often quite similar, mm-hmm. and that's the thing I can think of. It we like hmm, maybe you know if there was a way to you know there is a way to do more of that. Like it's it's a you know a time and a discipline question, not a not a like is it possible question. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing that pops into my mind. Is they seem to get that feeling out of being on the ocean.
0: I have to say I took sailing lessons out in the harbor here, and then yeah, I mean that for me is. I wouldn't say transcendent. It certainly wasn't the, it wouldn't match your whale experience, but it certainly takes me to another world. I mean, I'm only a few miles from home. It's it's like, I can see, I I can't quite see my home from the boat when I'm on, on the New York Harbor, but I'm a world away. I mean. Yeah. So yeah, let's pursue if there's something in this direction because the next step would be to make it a smart goal, something specific, measurable. Achieve, I, you probably know the acronym. Uh, I mean, I've heard it. Yeah. I, 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 but specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time bound. So that if, if you could, what I want to set up is so that we can talk afterward. And I, if I ask you, how did it go? That you can give me some, uh, story of how it went, some meaningful story of how it went. Can you think of something you could do to make it specific?
1: So, I mean, if it was sailing, the specific thing would be, okay, so I'm going to start, right? Like, like, you know, when I get back to Boston, Mm -hmm. like say like, okay, there are lots of different ways to take sailing lessons or to learn how to do it again, which I never got to any level of skill. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the specific thing would like, let's set it out, right? Okay. I'm going to do this every week. Um, And so. Now it could be taking lessons. I mean, it can also just be going on a sailboat. Going on a sailboat. Yeah. One of my friends has a sailboat, has a boat. And like, you know, in the summer, we he, we do go out together and it's not the same because he's – right, I'm a passenger. He is actually the one who's controlling the, the wind. And I do think the interaction with the wind is a big part of that experience,
0: right? Oh, man. Um, you reminded me of – I'm sorry. I just interrupted. But I um I took sailing lessons and I got invited to go on this, on, a, on a boat. And it was a casual race, but it was still a race. Yeah. And I didn't quite get sailing, racing. Like – I didn't realize like how the boat is like an instrument that you can play. Re- and anyway, so they were like, okay, at one point I was supposed to um let out some line and they said, okay, when we, you know, when we, when we turn, let out the line. And I, I do what I'd been doing in the lessons and like everyone on the boat is like, what just happened? And they all look at me. I'm like, what, what, what? And they're like, you let out it way too early. I was like, what? It was like a second, you know? <laughs> but. Everyone on the boat immediately knew exactly what was happening. I had no idea what was happening. <laughs> it was really it was a, quite a wake up. And I was like, oh, now I see the beauty of like, it's like playing in an orchestra. I, I, think, I think it's exactly
1: like playing in an orchestra,
0: right? Or, you know, or, or teams, I mean, playing ultimate, sports. Yeah. Or,
1: yeah, right. Like, like it's, there's this sense of being, so two parts, right? One is this sense of being in a group, which is powerful. Like, I think there's a basic human need to be in a tightly integrated group that our modern lives largely strip from us, unless you play competitive sports or, you know, or in the military. Mm -hmm. Um, But the second one is, it strikes me what you're describing is a flow state, right? Like, like we, we talk about flow states and how powerful they are and, and people who've been in them, right? They're more addictive than drugs, right? They'll do anything to get back into them. But what I suspect is what you're saying is you were in a group or maybe everyone else was in a group flow state, right? Where everyone was in that, working towards a single integrated, a single goal. And that must be, you know, however powerful, I bet that you feel the same, right? One of the reasons that I love teaching, I know if I were to break it out analytically, right? Is it is 80 minutes of a day where I must be a hundred percent present, right? I can't be checking my phone. I can't be thinking about anything about other stuff, right? I have to be here and in the moment. Absolutely. And we don't really get that, you know, we don't do that that often, even though all the evidence says that being present, right, mindful and in present in the moment will, like, do more for your happiness than doubling your income. So what you were describing to me, it sounds to me like when you were on that sailboat, was, you know, the team was in a flow state where they were present and engaged in something that was – and even the slightest disruption to that was a powerful – a powerful thing that they were aware of
0: yeah it was <laughs> it was quite an experience i and i'm really glad i had it i mean playing ultimate is is it's non-stop it's that's what the game is about i mean yeah and so do you do you think you could um if you take a couple lessons you're probably not going to reach that no, just yet it
1: takes time to get
0: to that yeah do you think that um is sailing in a direction that would be interesting i mean i know I took it would, a- would be re- go ahead my introduction was it's just a two-day weekend lesson, and it was it wasn't immersive because I came back home in the middle, in in the evening in between. But it's just anyway. Have you thought about how you, if you're up for it, to how to implement it?
1: I have. So so like like I mean that's something that you know my wife has just said to me. You know it's something she loves. You know she used to be a member of a yacht club and things like that. Is that she sailed competitively at nationals? Um, that I think it would be great to do. So it's pure it's you know as always with such things right there's sort of you know you catch me at a moment Josh where my life is about to become like infinitely more complex in the next couple of weeks mm-hmm. um and the question is you know how do you how do you manage that in the context but um but it's important right as you now, you know having this conversation with you is kind of driving home for me how important it is in a way that that it is i think for people especially people like us it's very easy sort of well, I once said that I have this heuristic that I got growing up about how do you prioritize your, what's what you should do versus, you know, that it's easiest just do what you want to do. And then, you know, rank the things that you want to do, mm-hmm. you know, do it in a list from the most thing you most want to do the least thing, and then just flip the list. And that's the way that's, that's the way you're supposed to actually go through. Your life. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but that's, you know, that's probably not a healthy way to go through life, but I think do think it is a way a lot of us are trained to do it, mm-hmm. um, to think through. And, um, and does strike me as a pretty powerful. I, like, I'm, I'm not 100% certain sailing is the right answer, but it feels like it's the right family of the right answers.
0: Do you scuba dive? Uh, I took a lesson or two, but um, not flying restricts it a lot. I, it restricts what you can do. Yeah, it depends on where you live. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, no, that, that's. I have talked to friends who it's another world for them and, and it's just magisterial. I have a friend who free dives, which is a level of risk that I'm not willing to take. But, um, well, do you think that sailing, I, I, my experience tells me with lots of people doing these things is that the way you described it is if it's not the best thing, it will lead to the best thing faster than and more effectively than not doing it. So, um, it has the feel, and you know yourself better than I do, but it has the feel of if you go for it, if you do something then you'll find it'll be either it's going to be more awesome than you expected or all the awesome you can handle or it will point to something else which tells me to nudge you in the direction of committing to something here and then um the more specific we make it here the more easy it is to do I think that's right so what I'll say is I will know
1: more about the shape of my life in 2 weeks than I do today mm-hmm. for reasons you know but we can't talk about it on the podcast yet. <laughs> um let's circle back in two weeks. Okay. And that's that's a concrete specific deadline. In two weeks, let's circle back and I will know a lot more about what my life looks like and you know, and and what my other commitments are.
0: Okay. So in two weeks and you won't have done you... a thing, but you will know you'll be able to commit to something one way or the other. I'll have a lot more knowledge about what I have the ability to commit to. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Then can we record that conversation? Cause it'll be part of what we're doing now. Sure. Why not? Okay. Then, um, and we're at a little over an hour. So let's stop here and then continue stop there. Oh, 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 wait. Before we do that, you're a leader. You work with leaders. I've been doing a leadership exercise with you. Okay. And, um, no, let's table it until later. We'll talk later after we finish it. But do you, do you have a sense of what's going on here of the technique? I think so. I mean, you, you,
1: you are trying to bring people, you're trying to anchor them to like the experiences in their life that speak most powerfully to their, to their identity and their soul. And, you know, to, to pick a metaphysical word and use it as a way to, 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 shape their behavior going forward.
0: Yeah. Behavior as a, as a, as a stepping stone to more. To more. Yeah. And I mean, what
1: well, I was say is I write, um, identity follows behavior. It does not precede it. We think it does, but the, the actual answer is you, what, who you, what you do shapes who you are, not the
0: other way around. You sound like Aristotle. Uh, and so, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know the quote I'm referring to, which I, maybe you were referring to. We are what we do repeatedly. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, uh, do you notice what I'm not doing?
1: Yeah. You're not like urging me. There's, there's no like invocation or pressure. It's, it, you're, you were driving this off internal things from me, not from you.
0: Yeah. It's intrinsic, not extrinsic is the way I usually put it. Yeah. So, all right, cool. So let's pick up here next time. So this will be, I wonder if, I, now I'm thinking logistically, do I, do I take the other one and, and stitch it into this one or make it two separate episodes or, anyway, I'll figure that out. Um, all right. So we're not done yet. We're mid-conversation, but even so, anything to close with for this particular conversation?
1: No, this is. I mean, other than this, that like Josh, it, it says something powerful and profound about your about your podcast that you, you know, like like I do. I have my own podcast, right? Like I've I've done more podcast interviews than I could begin to count, and that this is the first one I've done where I'm going. I'm being like, okay, I'm going to make some changes in my life because of this. I don't know what they are yet, but like, but I believe that I will. So that says something pretty powerful.
0: So now, you've gotten me to a cliffhanger. I think you're a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. This is like uh, Game of Thrones. We got a cliffhanger here. (laughs) Hopefully our ending is better than theirs. (laughs) Um, I've been watching precisely to avoid that feeling of like, I must watch the next one. I don't like feeling like I have to binge. (laughs) All right. I know we both have a hard stop at 1030. So I will talk in two weeks. Gotham, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Josh. Always a pleasure. Take care.
0: How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodekcom slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodekcom slash donate.